0: Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. Good morning. Feels quite seminary. There's something about early mornings in the rain in London welcome to Cass Business School. I'm Julia Hobsbawm, not from Cass Business School, but from Editorial Intelligence. We're very lucky that Cass are one of our partners who host events with us. Without further ado, apart from to say that this event is de facto on the record and being podcast for posterity, and therefore, don't put your hand up and speak and then afterwards say, I was shy. I'm going to hand over to Sarah Smith of Channel 4 to uh,
1: take proceedings forward. Thanks. Yes, I'm Sarah Smith. I'm the business correspondent from Channel 4 News for the last few weeks anyway. I've just recently come back from being the Washington correspondent for the last few years. and. One of the most striking things I think about the difference between living in the States was a hugely different attitude toward business across the whole country, and, and probably quite particularly towards foreign ownership of business. So I'm genuinely interested to hear what all of our speakers have got to say about the UK position on this topic. So when it comes to the question and answer session, don't be afraid to ask whether or not British business is losing its identity through takeovers. talk about whether or not it should be quite so easy for foreign companies to come in and take over. British companies like Cadbury, which of course caused a huge controversy. We could look at the expansion of British CEOs that are running so many British companies here at the moment. Um, But we might well hear people saying that they're genuinely proud that foreign companies want to come and invest in Britain and point out that we might not have a car industry, for instance, if it wasn't for foreign investment. So I'm sure we'll have a pretty wide-ranging debate on all of this. Um, We're going to introduce the speakers to give us a discussion. So let me introduce our first speaker, who is uh, here on my right, Stephen Patterson, director and CEO of the International Chamber of Commerce since the start of this year. He came there from several years at Dyson and has recently been warning about the dangers of the rise of protectionism, particularly in the kind of volatile economic times that uh, we see at the moment. So it's a particularly interesting time to introduce him.
2: Sir, thank you very much. Um, I think I'll sit down because it will create a slightly more sort of informal atmosphere and I hope this will be uh, an interactive session. Uh, I'm going to make. I think three points really in the five minutes I've been allowed. Uh, The first one, uh, please don't switch off when I mention the first one because the title of the first one is Academic Literature. Now I'm sure a lot of people will think my God, we didn't come here for a seminar on academic literature, but.
3: No, that's actually my responsibility.
2: Ah, that's, yeah, yeah, okay. Well, please don't take this personally. Um, The academic literature on uh, mergers and acquisitions is what I'm talking about. And if you look at a lot of it, a lot of it actually has been pretty negative about the impact of mergers and acquisitions in general. And I'm not here talking simply about foreign companies uh, buying British companies. I'm talking in general about the literature on M&A. If you go back uh, when, if you like, the current wave started in the 1990s, uh, KPMG put out some stuff saying that they thought actually 83% of, of, of mergers did not uh, result in enhanced shareholder value. Ten years later, they slightly revised that. They brought out a new study, which said that maybe uh, uh, 20% roughly really failed. Uh, 60% it was hard to tell whether they added or added to shareholder value or their effect was ultimately neutral. There have been a few other studies. There's one in Australia which uh, tends to put the thing in a rather more favourable light, but. My point is that quite a lot of the academic literature on m a focuses on shareholder value. And the best you can say is that the jury is still out on some of those things. I think one of the problems with that is the focus on shareholder value. Um, and I can see why, and here I will be slightly provocative, I can see why academics, uh, not, not academics, consultants and everyone love to focus on, on, on shareholder value. Because of course, it's, it's in a sense measurable. One of the points I want to put to you uh, in general about M&A is that the reasons for mergers are sometimes not so easily quantifiable. Sometimes uh, the reasons are uh, better to spread your risk in a sector which is becoming highly competitive. Sometimes the reasons are to strengthen your competitive position vis-a-vis your uh, other peers because you fear that they might get ahead of you. If you look at what's happening in the Uh, IT sector, with quite a lot of the IT companies now trying to, if you like, do an Apple, try to put together um, uh, uh, an operating system with handsets. You've got uh, Google and others buying Motorola, buying YouTube. They're trying to spread the range of products they can offer in the hope that they will grow. But growth may not actually be the measure of their success. Survival may turn out to be the measure of their success. So various reasons for mergers. I don't think the literature on shareholder value really captures the, um, uh, the success, if you like, of, of, of M&A generally. Secondly, my second point, the UK position. And this is where I get to the nub of it, really. And my strap line here is that hard cases make bad law, which I'm sure everyone has heard. But, but essentially, we should not allow some difficult high-profile cases to drive us into public policy positions that would be very damaging for the British uh, economy. If you look at the figures, um, uh, essentially the UK remains a net buyer of foreign companies. Not only a net buyer, but second only to the United States in the global league of companies buying foreign companies. Just this year, uh, the UK companies have made 86 foreign acquisitions uh, uh, worth 50 odd billion pounds. The United States, which piped us, made twice as many foreign acquisitions worth roughly twice as much. What that means is that UK companies are buying the same sort of companies or the same value companies as their American counterparts. So it's not that UK companies are picking up the rubbish that no one else wants, it's that UK companies Uh, are playing in exactly the same league as the United States, which is top of it. The net gain for the UK year to date has been 14 companies. I think it's a ridiculous way of measuring it. But it puts in perspective the notion, sometimes the popular notion, that the UK is inevitably losing out to foreign investors. And where is the UK investing? The top targets are the US. So we're not all just being swallowed up by US companies. Uh, India, Germany, France, uh, and Canada. So the UK is actually, in in these terms, doing pretty well. And the advantages to the UK are significant. If you look at the statistics over the last two-year period, or the two-year period for which stats are available, 2008 to 10, it looks like there were 682 acquisitions, which uh, resulted in increasing or safeguarding about 34,000 jobs. I come back to the safeguarding point because it's related to what I linked earlier. This is a very hard thing to prove because it's a counterfactual argument. What would have happened if the merger hadn't taken place is something that's very difficult to judge. But on uh, UK official statistics, it looks like some 34,000 jobs have been uh, gained or safeguarded as a result of, of uh, foreign uh, m and a My final point is, is this an issue for public policy, i.e., is this an issue where we think government and others should do more to intervene uh, in determining the outcome of takeovers, Uh, particularly, if you like, foreign takeovers? And I well understand the passions behind this. There have been some bad examples, there's no doubt about that. I think the way in which the Kraft cabbury thing was handled uh, was pretty poor. Um, But some would say that when Tatar Steel took over Chorus, Tatar Steel paid over the odds for it. Since then, the business has not gone very well, but largely, uh, it is said, because of the recession. So Tatar has has landed itself with a stake in the steel sector at a time when there was a huge recession. Arguably, British shareholders in Chorus got out of it just in time and managed to get Tatar to pay a premium. Uh, Those kinds of stories never make the front pages, but Kraft Cadbury, of course, always makes the the front pages. But don't let hard cases uh, make law at all. The answer to some of the hard cases is, of course, more shareholder activism, more shareholder responsibility on this. It's the shareholders who ultimately decide there is an issue over shareholder short-termism. There is a very real issue over shareholder short-termism. And um, We've got the, the review and consultation into short-termism being conducted by John Kay at uh, Vince Cable's request. And that is something that we will need to look at, and we'll be plugging into that review quite carefully. But for shareholders, they need to make sure that there is greater transparency around takeovers, that there are better communications about what the intentions of, of acquirers are, that if necessary, poison pills are built into a company's strategy if they feel very strongly that they should not be uh, prey, too easy prey to a takeover. And there certainly should be a level playing field on that uh, in respect of companies in the US. You may have seen Mike Lynch, boss of Autonomy, recently taken over by HP, talking about that recently in the newspapers. And then of course shareholders and management have to make sure that if a merger is going to achieve uh, the results that everyone wants, all those management details, proper integration, proper cultural match, uh, you know, proper consultation of stakeholders, having the right team to do it, all those things need to be in place. Sometimes shareholders are active. We've just seen it recently in G4S's attempts to take over the Danish company ISS, where in part, I think the shareholders felt that this, the, this, the, the, the takeover was gonna to be too unwieldy. You can say the shareholders were also worried about financing it through a rights issue, but but I think they also thought the whole thing was too big a gamble. And quite rightly, uh, they in essence pulled the plug on it. But that's the way to get, if you like, rid of the hard cases, to get the shareholders to exercise more responsibility, not to resort to protectionist measures. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, Stephen Patterson. I'm going to turn to my left and introduce Frances O'Grady now, who is the Deputy General Secretary of the TUC, uh, and is the first woman to have held that post. I don't know about you, I'm very much looking forward to the day I can introduce prominent women, and not say they were the first women to hold that post, because they'll be the second, third, fourth, or fifth woman to have ever held that post, but... Anyway, Frances O'Grady is the first. She sits on both the high pay and the low pay commission, which will give you a perspective uh, across the board when it comes to uh, comes to business. And um, I assume she's going to give us an employee's
4: perspective on foreign investment. I am. Thanks very much, Sarah. And I'm looking forward to the day when I can cover the middle as well, having got the top and the bottom sorted. Um, I guess um, the whole issue from our perspective, uh, certainly within our membership, the whole issue of foreign investment and particularly foreign takeovers can be quite emotive and I'm not just talking about Man U, Liverpool and Chelsea. Um, The question is does it matter and I guess uh, certainly probably the average uh, member in the trade union movement would say foreign ownership doesn't matter at all until it comes to decisions about closure and which plants go and which stay open and then it matters hell of a lot. Um, I think we also need to acknowledge from the start that there is a problem with investment in the UK generally. Um, Compared to our competitors, investment on every international measure in business, in innovation, in skills, uh, presence in emerging markets, productivity, we have a problem in the UK. And what's more, the investment that we have tends to be skewed towards finance and state, which are precisely the two areas I think that, uh, I think there's probably a growing consensus that we need to actually rebalance away from. Um, there's also, I think, a particularly British problem about um, views on the role of the state. This is clearly st- still a contentious uh, issue. Um, I think one of the greatest ironies of recent takeovers was last year's uh, takeover of Arriva, where you had a privatised rail service being re by Deutsche Bahn, in, in other words, <laughs> a German state-owned company. Uh, and I think, uh, in addition, that the role of sovereign wealth funds um, is also going to become sharper Uh, in in, uh, coming years. So as far as the trade union movement's concerned, foreign investment, foreign takeovers, it's had mixed reviews. I think there is an acknowledgement that overall it's been good for Britain's profitability. We'd acknowledge that UK is a net buyer, as you said, second only to the US. And certainly, optimists would point, for example, to the car industry, VW's role in Bentley, where there was genuine investment going into plant equipment, and crucially, the workforce. Uh, the role of Toyota, Nissan, these are all positive examples. But, uh, for every Bentley, there's a Peugeot, um, and um, certainly, I think, Will Hutton Uh, his research on mega mergers, which I think account for about 43% of the total spend, um, suggests that it actually destroys value. Um, And uh, we've certainly seen plenty examples of price being driven up in the way that uh, you described around Chorus and actually saddling that company with debt. Um, And of course, we have the infamous example of Kraft... Um, and uh, their takeover of Cadbury, um, where I have to say the workers in those plants not only feel that they had to suffer broken promises, but a year later they're still no wiser as to what that company's plans are for their future, their future and, and that of their communities. Um, I guess just to I think um, Ed Miliband has come in for quite a lot of flack on his speech, um, trying to draw a distinction between uh, producers and predators. Um, actually, I think things have moved on. I was very interested to hear David Cameron beginning to talk about responsible capitalism. Uh, it seems that we're all responsible capitalists now, so it may not have been a perfect uh, metaphor, and if it's, it's always hard on takeovers to say exactly what's a good one, what's a bad one, but clearly he's on to something, and I think it's something that we could usefully discuss here today, and if we're going to tackle it, then um, tackle the bad ones, then I think that would involve something uh, which could be quite challenging for the UK culture, which is... <coughs> Uh, addressing that primacy of shareholder value issue. Um, and certainly for the TUC's part, for example, we think there's a strong case uh, for changes to company law to rewrite directors' duties. So, for example, when they're giving recommendations on uh, mergers and takeovers, that it can't just be a case of how many bucks. am I going to make, or how many bucks are the shareholders going to make, it's got to address broader and longer term issues than that. Similarly, we think there's a case to establish a new mergers and takeovers commission where the primary test would be about the long term interest of the company. And thirdly, uh, we will continue to bang the drum for an active industrial Strategy in the UK, a strategy for decent jobs and growth. And as part of that, uh, we think there's a role, as we see in France, as we see in Germany, for some form of state investment uh, bank or fund that actually promotes innovation, that promotes greener industry, and that uh, considers, uh, controversial maybe here today, but perhaps not out in the country, the broader public interest of British business today.
1: Excellent, Francis, Thank you very much for that. Um, well, to pick up possibly on some of those points about um, state involvement as well as private business, we have a parliamentarian with us, luckily, named Lord Lyndon Harrison. He is chair of the Lord's Committee for Economics, Financial Affairs, and International Trade. So he's a very appropriate person to be speaking to us. Former Labour MEP for Cheshire West and the World. He's promising us some ev- examples of good foreign investment as well as some not quite so happy stories, I think.
5: Well, Sarah, let me put you at your ease. The two people from the House of Lords this morning, Lord Tim Boswell and I, are men, but the past five leaders of the House of Lords, uh, four of them have been women, and we now remark upon the fact that the most recent one is back to a man in a suit again. (laughs) But I wanted to pick up both what Sarah and Francis have started with in the uh, car industry as a callow councillor over 30 years ago on Cheshire County Council. We were asked to vote for or against keeping the Rolls-Royce car with which we paraded round uh, dignitaries in the county of Chester. In those days, uh, Cheshire used to have 28,000 employees, more than the uh, European Commission. It was a divided vote. Tories and uh, labor divided separately on the issue. We retained the car. To my great pleasure when I became an MEP, I uh, invited Klaus Hensch, the uh, chair of the European Parliament, to come and we uh, showed him Cheshire and all that we have to show there in the, in the car. More recently, well again, I was still a, uh, an MEP and um, uh, when uh, car-making in crew was threatened. I was uh, there uh, with um, the MP um, and it was taken over, as you know, by a German firm. One of them made a mistake, thought they had bought both Marks, that is Rolls-Royce and Bentley. They were were in error, so one went to BMW and the other one, which the BMW thought they bought, uh, went to Volkswagen. The point of that story is that I'd been around the works, I'd noticed how the lack of investment meant we weren't making the cars that we were capable of making. German investment came in, and there's no doubt about it. Bentley, which was retained a crew, Rolls-Royce, which came down south, have prospered since. And I think the point about Francis's comment on the car industry was they are classic examples of added value which is what I think we in the United Kingdom have to do, and we have to think in terms of of that investment. My last point about the car industry is when we suffered in 2008 the beginnings of the financial crisis. As it happened, I had scheduled, having had discussions with my friends in Bosch, to have a discussion, a, a debate in the House of Lords about the automotive industry, Fortunately, it came up at the time. Fortunately, I and others were able to encourage uh, the uh, introduction of the scrappage scheme, which was largely thought to be successful in getting rid of some of the old bangers, but retaining cars being built. I also had Vauxhall at Ellesmere Port in my constituency. At the time, the criticism was that parts were being made all over of the European Union and being imported into the uh, United Kingdom, just as of course we export uh, to Europe as well. It was a classic example of a benefit because we were part of uh, an integrated automobile, automotive industry within the European Union and that I think is not always recognized. I hope one of the things that I can expand on uh, later today Um, is about the importance of the European scheme, European scene and the single market. Because often I think, especially in the city, we're tilted very much towards thinking about the United uh, United States of America, when actually we should uh, be thinking a lot more about the opportunities which lie within the single market, a much bigger market uh, than is the case in America. Several cases have already been mentioned, uh, as in the case of uh, Kraft um, uh, by other colleagues, and Karl Kraft and uh, Cadbury's. I noticed too that there has been much comment recently about the Russian oligarchs, which again, Sarah, you, you noted the relationship to the football scene, and there's some incredible parallels with the world of football, European football, and the world of finance and investment, um, but you, you mentioned those, but there uh, is a worry now that the Russians are coming, to uh, quote the Zinoviev letter, for those of you who are tutored in these, thing, these things, um, of many years ago, and there are fears that oligarchs are now m- moving in, they're getting access to the FTSE uh, 100, Sometimes they're uh, having the rules waived requiring 25 uh, minimum percent uh, um, uh, application to to be able to do that. Now, what I say, and this is perhaps the theme I'll uh, I'll end on, is that any market needs to be regulated. Any market needs to have uh, well thought through rules and regulations. And we the politicians often do that well. We make the laws, but the laws then have to be monitored. Someone has to observe within the marketplace whether they are being monitored properly. And if they are not monitored, then they have to be either adjusted or those who are transgressing the rules and regulations which govern the market uh, then have to be penalized and I suggest in the case of the fear of the Russians coming, if the uh, uh, FT, uh, the FTSE themselves uh, permit and allow those to come into the uh, market who are not observing the minimum rules, uh, then action has to be taken. But it is the wise setting up of rules and regulations, the wise and, uh, and observant monitoring, and then taking the appropriate action. That's going to be true in whatever market you talk about. And in that case, I, I end up saying, think about football market.
1: Excellent, Lord uh, Lyndon Harrison, thank you very much for that. We've got a, a fourth and final speaker from the um, Cass Business School itself, our hosts today, the Director of Mergers and Acquisitions, who uh, tells me that is still the most popular subject in the school, I don't know whether he was making that point to show us that this is the most interesting subject that we could all be sitting here listening to, or whether that was just a, a boast about his department. But uh, he's um, well placed to talk to us about this. He's spent years at Deutsche Bank, at Booz Allen Hamilton, at Morgan Stanley in the States, and worked in Japan and Germany as well. So we can get a truly global perspective on foreign investment from Professor Scott Miller.
3: Thanks. Um, I guess up front, I ought to say that uh, I am a rabid Chelsea fan. So know about oligarchs. Uh, let, well, let's, let's not talk about recent games uh, or or 50 million pound uh, purchases that have, at this point in time, I think uh, the the cost for the oligarchs was 10 million pounds per goal or something like that right now. So, um, um, but in any case, uh, at the moment. Uh, <laughs> I can uh, I can see okay so uh, so um, have we got another ar- we got an arsenal supporter here my 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 PA is as well so life was difficult for me early this week um, the um, there, there there's a couple things I have to admit I'm sick and tired of hearing about Kraft and Cadbury because that seems to be the poster child deal uh, I'm also sick about hearing of that as being a threat to the UK Cadbury has more employees, had more employees overseas than they did here. They sold more overseas than they did here. um, And their shareholding was only about 29%, uh, I think, UK at the time. So I'm not even necessarily sure that is the right deal that Lord Mandelson made as popular as it was to actually ultimately result in changing the takeover code, which it did, as I think everybody knows, on the 19th of September. Um, Nevertheless... um, because it's very nice to move away from anecdote to actual fact, which I think is one of the things that I would like to do, and perhaps to keep us all honest on this panel here, uh, if my fellow panelists will bear with me on that. Uh, one of the um, urban myths about M&A um, I'm sorry to say, Stephen, you have fallen for, um, and that is that M&A deals, even on shareholder value, destroy value, uh, because that was true in the 1980s. It was true in the 1990s. It is not true in the 2000s, and I spend a significant amount of time trying to correct that error um, and I'm glad to see there's about like 40 people here in the room who now will move away from here knowing that, in fact, if you do a deal, and we've looked at this and we look at this every single quarter, uh, you outperform those companies who don't do deals. But I do think that shareholder value is a very narrow way of actually looking at it. Um, and I'm sure that... Um, Francis, you would agree with me on that. You know How the shareholders make out is, in fact, only one small aspect of whether, in fact, a deal is, in fact, going to be successful. I know, Stephen, you would agree with me on that as well. Um, but we just recently completed a study for BIS looking uh, over the course of the last 10 or 15 years at all the deals done here in the U.K., so including foreign investment and not. Um, we we found out that there was not overall a decrease in shareholder value when you look at... Uh, at uh, uh, at, at both target companies and acquirers. But most importantly, which I think was actually quite interesting and is quite counterintuitive uh, as well from what people seem to do in taking anecdote, is that when you look three years later, the companies um, you know, who are doing the acquisitions, uh, typically here in the UK, have 50% more jobs than, uh, than they did prior to the acquisition. And in fact, in the first year, it's 34 percent more. The second year, 42 percent more. In the fifth year, 50 percent more. Uh, third year, 50 percent more. You know, so there is actually an increase in employment following M and A deals, despite some very high-profile deals that seem to make the front page. You know, that say otherwise uh, on that. Um, it is already a very, very highly regulated industry. We have a takeover code. We have a monopolies commission that does look at, at uh, whether it, and, and, and competition commission, uh, you know, that look at that. We do have Brussels looking over our shoulder as well, at least for the moment. Um, and, um, you know, the takeover code itself is subject to continual revision. It was revised uh, back in the early 2000s, it was revised again this year. Uh, there was a very, very long process. We here at Cass and the m and Research Center were involved with that process, and there were some very, uh, you know, there were nine general areas, uh, you know, that were discussed as to whether there should be changes, uh, and there were changes made in a large number of those areas to make it more difficult in most cases for takeover companies, excuse me, for targets to be taken over. Um, and obviously there are some people who, Feel that that went a step too far; that the pendulum was swinging too far in that direction. Uh, but you know, one of the things that the panel has actually says is that they will be reviewing that. So I think, uh, Lord Linden, that you know that is something that is 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 continually being looked at, uh, and very nicely that we do have, um, you know, the process here in the UK. Um, Despite the accent, I do have a British passport, so I can say here in the UK. In that way, um, you know that we that, that we look at this. Um, the other one more point that I just want to talk about, um, and that is the issue of whether, in fact, we ought to provide more protections for. Uh, target companies, whether we ought to be doing things like poison pills and so on. Uh, The academic research on that, and I won't bore you with it, I've given you enough numbers already, uh, but the academic research on that is actually quite limited. But uh, personally, if I can move away from some of the literature, I have a problem because of the agency theory that, that in fact if you allow companies to have too many poison pills, what you actually can do is you can entrench and make it easier for bad managers not to be held accountable. Because m and I believe, and I'll, st- and I'll end with this comment, is in fact the ultimate test on whether management is successful or not. And if, in fact, they're not successful, they will be a takeover target. Uh, and therefore, I do believe that the ability to be able to let anyone come in and, um, you know, and buy a company that is uh, performing badly uh, is, in fact, a very, very strong control uh, over management itself in terms of the way it's actually implementing the strategy that they've set forth. So. Okay.
1: Robust defense of uh, m and to uh, kick us into the uh, Q&A session. Um, now, if I can ask you all, um, if you do have a question, to say your name um, and where you come from, just so that our podcast listeners can uh, keep up with who's who. Um, feel free to direct your question to any one or um, several of our panelists. Um, Who would like to start us off with a bit of discussion?
6: I, I in turn, um, would say that I don't disagree with anything Lyndon has said. I want to share with you briefly one anecdote, ask why two things haven't uh, been in question, and then perhaps end with a comment. The anecdote is, when I was a constituency MP some time ago, um, we had quite a high concentration of high-tech industries. One of those was a well-known... British PLC, which was taken over and divided between UK and German principals, Uh, I went and begged the boss of the German business to take the research um, facility which was in my patch because, frankly, I thought he'd make a better job of it and have a more long-term perspective on it. That didn't work and I was right in the long term. Uh, And I think that probably says more in a way than some and John Kay's study will now have, to have more to say about short-termism. I think I then go on just to comment that the German company, I was anxious that we should get involved if we could, has been established in the UK, I think, for 150 years. They don't actually have an English name like the Ford Company, which my father used to work for, but uh, um, they're on the way. Uh, the the two comments I make are, first of all, we don't beat ourselves up about the nature of the share book in a UK PLC unless you're looking at mergers and acquisitions or stake building. We don't sort of say have they got a big – in fact, it's rather an embarrassment if they've got a, a, a micro shareholder base because somebody told Sid. Um, or it's heavily concentrated in pension funds or they're overseas and others here will know more than I do the proportion of um, – foreign ownership of UK PLCs as well as their foreign activities which has already been mentioned. Second point is we should perhaps also be thinking about the conduct of UK-based PLCs. Um, In a sense of course there's a gateway if there's an external merger or acquisition from a non-UK company Uh, but that doesn't I think absolve UK companies from performing properly and uh, I think somewhere behind that and I wouldn't want to suggest, because I think Francis is right, there's quite a strong political tide running in this, particularly at a time of some difficulty, is there's a common interest in company behavior, uh, companies' exercise of a sense of responsibility, uh, which goes rather wider than their immediate PL, or even perhaps the fulfillment of some narrow regulatory requirements, and ask them to do a rather better job and have a longer-term perspective as, frankly, some of our continental counterparts, but also American counterparts have been able to do. So I would um, say in one sense it doesn't really matter what the ownership is as long as the behaviour is satisfactory and sometimes it isn't, but it isn't confined to foreign acquirers. It happens in the UK as well. And I just think this theme about how we're going to conduct ourselves in future in business with all the stakeholders that business has is a rather wider one than the issue which we're rightly focusing on, but shouldn't get alarmed about.
1: Well, pick up some of that, then um, Francis. Do you think does it make a difference to companies' behavior, who they're owned by? I,
4: I agree with you absolutely in principle. the, the problem is people's real experience, and that um, absolutely corporate governance, uh, what kind of capitalism? We're going to have, is there a way of creating a better capitalism, and what's uh, the role of the company within that? How does a company um, uh, change to address not just shareholders, but also its own workers, customers, communities? All of that, I think, is a really, really important debate. The problem is when people are under pressure, you know, we've got... uh, at the moment where you know, in theory uh, there's a, a European Works Council. In practice, we know uh, that the priority in terms of uh, that company, frankly, isn't going to be to what happens to the, the workers who, frankly, look set to lose their jobs in this country. Um, and partly that's because national governments elsewhere Uh, take a much more proactive uh, approach to nurturing uh, businesses based in their country, frankly regardless of ownership, but as long as they're delivering real value and uh, decent jobs uh, for their citizens, whereas I think in the UK industrial policy has been out of fashion, frankly, for far too long. Uh, So so I do agree with you in principle, but there are there are real practical issues, certainly in the trade union movement, we have to deal with on a, on a week-to-week basis. And can
1: I ask you, Steve, perhaps to just make a quick comment. Does it make any difference to corporate responsibility in companies' behavior, whether they're foreign or domestically owned?
2: Um, well, it shouldn't, is a short answer. I mean, I entirely agree. Uh, you, let's call it corporate responsibility is a hugely important thing. A lot of work's being done on this. I believe where corporate responsibility succeeds best is where it's fully integrated into a company's overall business strategy. That's my first point. The second point I would like to make is the whole question of a level playing field. I mean, the global economy is now hugely complicated. Um, uh, You you can no longer really measure what's happening in the global economy by looking at imports and exports moving from one country to another because a Nokia phone's. Uh, is is designed in Finland, made in in China, with chips that may have been designed in Cambridge and manufactured somewhere else, the the pattern of the global economy has become much more complex uh, than ever before. And in that context, it's very important that we try to make a level playing field everywhere. But that's not yet the case. And when it comes to British companies investing overseas, one or two have been... um, have faced uh, discriminatory treatment, really, in some countries. I'm talking about Vodafone in India, where they faced uh, you know, um, a bill for back taxes for a company that they weren't really responsible for at the time. And that seems to be unfair. On the other side, when we're setting standards for British companies, it's very good if we can help apply them to overseas companies as well. And here there's a very good example in the UK Bribery Act. The UK Bribery Act sets a very high bar for British companies, and rightly so. Uh, but it also says that that law will apply to any foreign, call it a foreign company, foreign company with a presence in the UK. And one of the big challenges for the UK um, authorities will be how successfully they can bring a, a prosecution under this act against a foreign company that's been paying bribes somewhere and doing British companies out of business as a result.
7: Peter York, SRU. It's fantastic that we're talking about this. Um, it isn't talked about enough, and the conversation doesn't go wide enough and there are lots of urban myths around and we need before anybody talks about any interventionism or even you know industrial strategies it would help to know what this issue is all about and we don't because we've got a lot of rather small partisan views on it Um, we've got a a narrow economic one, we've got a city view, we've got um, 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 an immediate industrial view um, uh, which is all about jobs. We don't know what it means but what I do know is that if this country is more fluid than other nation states the the same size, i.e. buys and sells businesses more, who always profits from that? Uh, and that is one of the loudest voices in the lobby for all that going on. In other words, our very large, second largest in world financial sector always takes a very good cut. I say this as a bottom feeder off those processes. You know, I get some of those golden crumbs, but this, the City of London always does very well out of that process. I know because I've seen it close at hand, that British companies at their highest levels are very susceptible to a silver bullet that says M&A will solve your problems, solve your strategy questions here and now. And that's a very seductive siren call from somebody in the city who takes a rather susceptible CEO to the bridge of the world and says, this can be yours. And that's a very dangerous process. We should know how, you know, how that all works through. And we don't.
1: Can I ask you, Lord Harrison, to pick up? Is there self-interest in the city driving this process?
5: Well, what I did want to say, M&A comes under corporate governance as far as I'm concerned. I normally share breakfast with Tim Boswell in the House of Commons where we're part of the all party group on corporate governance, where for many years, our our chair was Paul Miners, it's um, now Alan Michael, who both had distinguished uh, interests in in this um, area. And I think for many years we've um, been concerned that the uh, kind of model that exists, and the need to report Um, as companies are are required to do, is done uh, transparently and accurately. There's too much fudge, which gives um, misleading information or gives too much information. But I think it's important to promote corporate governance, difficult though that may be. In terms of looking outwards and having a more uh, open market than many others in the in the world. Uh, I think we celebrate London for that. But the thing that worries me most, that when we're talking about globalization, because that is what we're talking about, the city of London, um, and and many of those who operate within it, don't think globally. They think about the city of London, but they don't think we had a throwaway line from Scott about um, Brussels and, and so on. Well, uh, the the deep ignorance of those who work in the market about what is being proposed by Brussels, or indeed, as in many of these things, it will not be contained within the single uh, European market or the European Union, because all these matters will have to rise to a global level, where there'll have to be an understanding about what are the struts and threats that create the market and which require them to be governed in some some way or other. And uh, I would say this because I go back to the, 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 the corporate uh, uh, governance breakfast that we have. Be very nice to see many more faces as those in front of us today to come and talk to parliamentarians. It is a, a wonderful opportunity uh, to talk to parliamentarians. Parliamentarians are ignorant. Uh, until you tell us. If you don't tell us, if you don't communicate, then we'll remain ignorant and we will fashion the laws and regulations which will be unhappy for you. But you have to make an effort, if we have any kind of skill as parliamentarians, which Tim will have had over many years as a constituency MP, is to understand the problem that is brought to him or her uh, by the constituent or the Uh, the corporate or or whatever, but uh, an effort has to be made on all sides that we understand the territory we're talking about so that on that basis we can fashion the laws and regulations which then govern us.
1: We have other people hoping to get in. I just want to get a couple of sentences if I can from Scott Muller about whether or not the presence of the the city helps or hinders British business when it comes to M&A.
3: Well, I think, first off, there's a misimpression that was perhaps given that deals are sold, they're not bought by the city. Um, Having been somebody who was a practitioner for many years uh, in the city, but also in other locations, uh, it typically was not us going to companies saying, here's a deal that you ought to do, but it was companies approaching us saying, here's the deal that we have thought of, can you help us implement that? Uh, and it's not just the investment banks, but then it's lawyers, it's accountants, it's PR firms, it's, it's general management consultants, it's uh, you know, many others as well who then become supportive on that uh, particular effort. Nevertheless, the theory of what you're saying, or I think what you were trying to say behind it, that many of these are in fact um, uh, not the right deal for the company, that in fact they may be dreamt up to hide problems, uh, that in fact the strategy may not have been thought out. Uh, you know, in advance, and that in fact many of the deals are in fact driven by management hubris—the idea that bigger is better and even bigger is even better. Um, you know, is is certainly there as well. So, um, you know, these many deals should not have taken place. Uh, I think that's why it's very easy to find the anecdotes to support uh, the previous information, which was that most deals fail. Uh, but, uh, but I do think, um, you know, in in most cases, the city is actually supporting, not driving these deals.
8: For one of my sins, I built a a U.K. business that sold in 110 countries. We had a factory in China, one in the Czech Republic. We had a working joint venture in Egypt. So, I understand the global economy. Um, I, I think it comes down to leadership and values, and I think you've nearly touched on the real heart of the matter, which is around the importance of social responsibility across the platform, including the shareholder piece, and the way people look at um, return on investment and the reward structure. And the leaders in the organizations will only perform according to the way they are awarded. And um, I was only a small company director, but I, you know, I think there is a younger economy coming to the market that I think is going to make changes because they are starting to speak out and demand that companies consider more widely the impact they have as, a, as, a, as an overall process. And I think that's fantastic. But I think some of the older voices in the city need to wake up and start talking about values with passion and not you know, um, disregarding that these are intelligent, educated, highly motivated, mobile people and that needs to be at the heart of what we do in business. I, I think you need to talk about enterprise leading that attitude.
0: It's
4: absolutely the discussion that we need to have. And, You know, again, from my perspective, this may sound like a rhetorical point, but when one day you're receiving news that top directors in Britain have awarded themselves a 49% pay increase, and then I'm sat in the low pay commission, uh, uh, frankly, considering whether the poorest workers in Britain will take yet another cut in real pay on top of the cut in real pay they got last year. I mean, these are not just rhetorical issues. I think if you look historically, There is a cycle where you see an explosion of technological innovation. You see, frankly, things getting out of control, whether it's the dot-com bubble or uh, the latest crisis, you end up with a crisis. And then there is always a period where you have to revisit those crucial issues of social solidarity, what is the purpose of the economy, what's it for? Is it simply to make some people rich at the expense of others or does it have other obligations in terms of provision of uh, decent jobs, the social security system and so on? So these are very big questions, but I think business and business leaders can't live beyond society, as we're seeing in the discussions uh, around Greece at the moment and the referendum, you know, these are real issues um, that have to be addressed.
1: But another contribution from the audience.
9: There we go. John Kelly, Thus Media. Uh, I'd like to ask the panel, I, I'm not really that bothered about uh, football clubs or Bentley or Rolls-Royce being owned by foreigners or actually Cadbury. But if we're talking about the benefit of foreign ownership to Britain, surely the elephant in the room are the public utilities, which have been privatised, which are for the most part now owned by French, German... Francis, you made the point that Arriva is owned by a part privatised at best, if not publicly owned German company. Now, we know that um, in customer satisfaction statistics, the utilities are scoring extremely badly. Find that staggering amount of £2 million by uh, Ofcom last week or Ofgen for uh, misleading customers. What's the benefit to the British consumer and indeed to British business of very, very high energy prices, very, very high utility prices, loss of jobs, etc., etc., of foreign ownership of those particular things?
4: Even it
1: doesn't feel as though global competition has brought down our energy prices when you get the gas bill through the door. So what good has it done us that our utilities are foreign owned? Well,
2: I think, I think it's, it, in a sense, it's wrong to blame foreign ownership for these problems. Yes, there are issues around the energy market at the moment, driven largely by, we are led to understand, by the increase in the price of raw materials, which is driven largely by developments uh, elsewhere in the world. Where well, and generated by some
1: of these companies. Well, it, it may not be their fault, but what hasn't happened is opening them up to foreign ownership. And it, although it makes some people feel very uneasy that something like our utilities are on abroad, doesn't seem to have helped us in any way.
2: Yeah, we need to find ways of stimulating more competition in some of these sectors, there's no doubt about that. And energy is not the only one. The financial services is another one where we need to find ways of stimulating more competition but this is part and parcel of learning how to live with a you know, deregulated economy which previously was a national, we had a national monopoly or a small group of companies uh, monopolizing the sector. We need to learn how we can insert more competition into it.
1: You mergers and acquisitions mean that the competition is taken out of it?
2: Well, of course there is the mergers. Mergers and acquisitions are always subject to the test of whether any company is gonna achieve a dominant position and that's in most jurisdictions
3: a reason for blocking uh, an M&A. I happen to agree with you that the utility sector isn't seeing the competition that we need but more importantly I think there isn't a level playing field even across Europe if we look elsewhere I mean I can't imagine London Electricity buying Electricity de France um, you know yet they were allowed to come in and, and and buy here you know and the same thing is true for Germany I mean, if 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 on national security grounds, the French can actually block the purchase of a yogurt company uh, from being bought by a German company, you know, it, it, something is wrong in terms of that level playing field. And I think that needs to be addressed. That's not a U.K. issue. That perhaps you know, comes back to the Brussels issue. Uh, you know, but I think in one way, we are playing by the rules and others aren't. And there is something unfair about that.
10: David Seymour, uh, formerly political editor of the Mirror Group. Um, I'm interested in the the public perception of of foreign ownership uh, in this way that um, we all know that uh, the attitude towards immigration in this country is that we want to stop immigrants coming, the government wants to stop immigrants coming, and yet there is absolutely no suggestion or no feeling either among politicians or among the, the, the general public that we ought to stop foreign ownership of. Uh, 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 of British companies, so we've got, just for, for an example, that the, the I don't know, Filipino or Indian person who wants to come and work in a care home here is prevented from coming, but if a foreign company wanted to take them over and put up the fees so that you know, it becomes harder for old people to stay, stay in them, there's, n- there's no groundswell, and I do agree with the, uh, the gentleman John there about, uh, about the utilities, and there is... I, I'd like to know from the panel, first of all, why they, they think there is no reaction, Uh, And secondly, whether, I mean, I do think we're on the cusp of of something really, possibly even revolutionary happening, not just in Greece but in all sorts of places in the world, Uh, whether whether there is a danger, if danger is the right word, that there now becomes the sort of reaction that we've seen to immigration, towards foreign ownership of British companies and so that that the foreign owners are blamed for some of the things that are happening in this country which we see, of course, with the EU at the moment, anyway. Let's,
1: let's just pick up a point from the front row as well, and then I'll
8: put it to the panel.
2: Ten group, just on the back of the comment, on, on that comment, um, is it possible that the UK is missing out on potential foreign investment, which would, in fact, increase competition um, and, in turn, uh, boost the economy, increase jobs? Uh, I suppose the worry is that we aren't open enough for business and we'll lose out foreign investments to other uh, emerging economies.
1: Are we open enough for business? And do you think there, there, there is or isn't a, a reaction to, uh, to, to to foreigners immigrating into our uh, companies? So the Cabaret-Craft deal, which of course is cited as a bad example of this, some of that was a xenophobic reaction, wasn't it?
2: Well, I was going to use the word xenophobic. Um, uh, I think these are, these are tricky issues. Uh, I sometimes say that one of the mistakes with economics was when people stopped using the phrase political economics. And they tried to pretend economics was a science, and it lost track of the politics. And I think what, what you're touching on is the whole question of, actually, political economics. I mean, there are things that uh, people are very nervous about. And they are very much more nervous, it appears, about foreign workers coming here and appearing to take, as it were, their jobs than they seem to be about foreign companies taking over bits of British business, except, you know the craft Cadbury thing is a bit of an exception. Uh, My own view is that we do need to be more open. I entirely agree. The UK does need to be more open. And we run the risk of adopting uh, policies on immigration, which actually uh, close our market to a lot of talent from overseas uh, and a lot of labor from overseas that would actually boost our economy and help us to focus on those things that we can do genuinely uh, better than other people and improve our competitive advantage. but as I said at the beginning, this is a political, a political issue, and it's one of those issues where economics and politics uh, clashes head on.
1: I can ask you, Lord Harrison, why, why do the British people care about folk coming from overseas and taking our jobs but not taking our companies?
5: Well, David Seymour made the very interesting point about why do we view that in a poor way, whereas we embrace uh, foreign investors. And certainly, the good people of Crewe were pleased to have 3,000 jobs associated with Bentley, in a sense, they couldn't care uh, who uh, provided that as as long as they had it. I think this is a very important issue about um, the immigration. I celebrated my Labour government, uh, along with the uh, Irish and I think the Swedes, who didn't enforce rules that were open to others within the single market of preventing uh, immigrants coming into this country who had the appropriate qualifications. The truth of the matter is this, and I would live in the world of small businesses, the people who get up off their backside within the European community and come to this country to work hard and to produce some new, new businesses are the very people we celebrate. And because we had that open attitude, we have the creme de la creme of the people who are prepared to move and to invest in, in the, and develop the, the small businesses. You see it flourishing, not just in London, when Ken Clark once remarked that these days you can't get a cup of coffee in central London but it's a Pole or it's a Hungarian or someone else, but also in my neck of the woods, in, in Chester and in, in, in Cheshire. So I do say that, I, it needs to be tempered. There's another aspect, there are some, we don't want to get particularly party political, but we've got to be very careful about the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the benefit that this country accrues, which in a sense is foreign investment, in the form of our universities. The more we prevent young people coming to our universities, learning our kind of education, our kind of outlook, returning in time to uh, their own countries to rise into significant positions, means that we lose out ultimately. We should see education, I'm quite unabashed in saying this, we should see education as an, an industry. And that, if I can just borrow a couple more bits of time, Sarah, we, we haven't spoken about the foreign investment that we make elsewhere. I travel uh, quite a bit with parliamentary groupings. One of the things I've seen begin to flourish is the um, placement of British university campuses around the world, giving opportunities to generate income, uh, generate and su- sustain universities and higher education back in the uh, United uh, Kingdom. I was out in Vietnam recently and they were about to announce some very big deals to be done there. Of course they want uh, their, their students uh, to come to the United Kingdom, but it's often better for them if we have plants of universities there and then. Uh, just to finish on this figure, just look at the difference. France uh, in, in, is, is doing FDI at about 150 billion dollars, Germany 60 billion, and the UK 18 billion. Now, where are our enterprises investing abroad and taking the opportunities that? Uh, we haven't, and that's a counter to the, where the conversation has been this morning where we simply talked about foreign investment comes here. The proper counter is that if there's a free flow of trade and ideas then it should also operate the other way around.
1: Thank you very much. Now, it's, it's, it's after 9.30, um, and I'm sure at least some of you have got jobs to go to, so we'll try and wind this up reasonably quickly. I'm going to take a couple of points from the floor, but not necessarily put them to the panel, just take some additional contributions from the floor and then wrap up.
11: Okay. Gary Wright, BIS Research and Spurs supporter. Uh, strangely, I, I find myself also in your camp, Francis. Uh, um, one of the the things that i'm really worried about at the moment and it's it's a, probably not uh, mergers and acquisition it actually comes a bit below that it's um it's in the primary market is how do we st- in these um, very very bad times that we're in how do we stimulate um, new innovations new companies smaller companies um clearly the the uh, the policies of of um QE and what have you are not getting down into the grassroots of companies to to be able to, to you know to build towards the MA of the future. So is the the uh, the, the current uh, policies that, that the government are following, is the current economic global economic situation not so much uh, the UK, but is that going to choke off MA in the future?
1: Well, we, we we may have reached a natural end. So I'll ask everybody. Um If you can, maybe starting with you, Scott, just to pick up on that point and uh, and say a couple of closing words. Yeah, I mean, I just...
3: actually actually wanted to pick up on the other point that I think we need to look on it as being two-way. If we, in fact, are open, we're going to be... Uh, encouraging more investment, foreign direct investment as well. And I think it is a two-way street. And I think that despite the figures that you had, which are quite interesting, I hadn't seen those before, that that in fact France is so much higher than we are, despite their own closed economy. I'm not sure whether that's long-term sustainable, and I think we therefore want to be encouraging it both ways. But I do think we need to be looking at more than shareholder uh, value, coming back to the original point that uh, you know, that Stephen made um, you know, in looking at things like company efficiency you know, in, in employment and so on. Uh, but I'll just close with saying that the, that the data for deals that have been done since 2000 seems to be quite supportive of this actually being good for the economy, good for companies. You know, let's just make sure that we keep the regulations in place uh, to make sure that happens as we're continuing to revise it.
1: Stephen, what if we allow
2: this I just Well, let me just make, I'm gonna make one point uh, uh, And it picks up on the point about whether the government's policies are choking off m and I'm not gonna answer that. But I think there is a real risk to having uh, uh, an open attitude to cross-border investment worldwide. And that risk is the resurgence of protectionism. And we are seeing it almost everywhere now. It's not hard to understand why. You've got an economic crisis. You've got a cycle of political elections in the United States, uh, in France, uh, China. Not an election, but a change of regime. This is a heady mix. And if we're not careful, people will forget the lesson of the Great Depression, which was a financial crisis became a depression when protectionism set in.
1: Lord Harrison, a last couple of words from you. Well, uh,
5: First of all, uh, Stephen, is, uh, I, I don't think it's absolutely true of the, um, the European Union, the single market. I think the car industry was a good example of where protectionism didn't actually uh, um, uh, take, take root, although the, uh, the French uh, tried to, to implement that and were struck down by uh, the commission. But I wanted, in in just concluding, just to say this Sarah, the committee that I chair is currently doing the residential property directive. We're going to be taking evidence on the financial transaction tax. We've published work on the sovereign um, credit rating uh, agencies and we're also doing an update of our own euro crisis uh, document. And that brings me to John Kelly. I've always been a strong supporter of the single currency. We've got one here in the United Kingdom, it's called the pound. You don't have to swap or change it when you go from Chester to Wrexham. Principle of it is is the same. But the thing I'm passionate about, John, as I told you, is the single market. And I think that answers many of the points that we were talking about before that, if you want to raise standards, have common standards, have influence in the world, influence America, we're bigger than America as a united uh, Europe, then get the single market uh, working. And this is a very sad story, but the creator of the single market was a man called Lord Cofield. He was a conservative peer. Uh, I took his book away. Uh, on them and sat on the beach and read it, thrilled. And I wrote to him afterwards and said, um, "You made me. You helped me pass a wonderful summer holiday with your book about the single market. There should be more fanatics like me who want to ensure that the single market open, free, and fair for people to to work in and uh, should should operate. And that way, we'd find a um, a solution. The single currency." is only an adjunct of the single market. Make Prime the, the cause of the single market.
1: Frances, the last few words for you and then we'll close.
4: Well, I, I, picking up on perhaps David's point, I think in a, in a period of high unemployment, especially high youth unemployment, in a period when people are very scared and very angry, there is always a, a danger that some very ugly forces and values are unleashed in that kind of period. Um, I mean, in fact, in real terms, for example, um, at Lindsay Power Station, which was pitched as, workers uh, going on an official strike against the Italian workers who were brought in. As you'll know very well, David, the demand of uh, those workers at Lindsay wasn't to get rid of the Italian workers, it was that all workers should be paid according to the industry agreement. That's what they were asking for. But I think uh, to avoid uh, the risk of protectionism, of xenophobia and so on, you have to inject some fairness more, rules, uh, more fair rules into corporate governance and markets, and currently people just don't feel that's what's happening. They don't feel they're even given a voice as uh, the workers of companies over what will affect their future and those of their families and communities. So I think we do have to rethink. We do have to be prepared to, uh, disclosure is important, but frankly we've had lots of information. That doesn't seem to shift what actually happens. We need something a bit tougher and bolder to deal with what I think is a new era and hope is a new era of better capitalism.
1: Thank you very much. A lot of uh, fascinating points from our uh, panel and from the floor, and plenty more to discuss on another day, but uh, we probably should leave it for another day, so I'll just say Thank you to Professor Scott Muller, to Stephen Patterson, to Francis (coughs) O'Grady, and to Lord Lyndon Harrison, and thank you to you all for coming and joining in, and uh, hopefully we will all see each other soon again at another one of these events. Thank you very much.